Praise the Lord and good morning. Amen. So good to see everyone here this morning. <clears throat> I had a guy, uh, uh, one of my dorm supervisors in Bible school would always knock on the doors in the morning and say, it's a big, bright, beautiful night out there this morning. <clears throat> Amen. And I didn't get it at first because I never got up that early. Well, I did in the army, but anyway, it's night when you get up in the morning. Anyway, <laughs> so good to be here this morning. Amen. In the presence of the Lord, in the presence of all of you. Praise God. Let's all stand. I believe with all my heart, God has a plan and a purpose for our services here this morning. That's what we want to see manifest here today. His plan, His will, His mind, His heart in our services today. Let's call out to the Lord our God. Let's minister unto Him with our worship and with our praise as He desperately desires to minister to every one of our needs here today. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. You're great and greatly to be praised. I worship and I praise my Creator today. I rejoice in the God of my salvation. Thank You, Jesus, for this opportunity You've afforded me to enter into the very throne room of God, the very presence of Almighty God. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that we would bind together as one body here today, entering into the presence of God, ministering unto You with our worship and praise and giving of thanks. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as You know every need, that You administer to the needs represented here today. It is Your heart. It is Your desire to do so. I pray, Lord, I pray, Lord Jesus, that You would draw us nigh unto You, that as we enter into the presence of God, we would receive of You Your good things. Help us, Lord Jesus, to hear Your voice. Help us to feel Your touch. Help us to draw nigh unto You. Help us to become more like You today and every day moving forward. Help us, Lord, to manifest You in this economy, to demonstrate You effectually, to be an effectual ambassador of Jesus Christ to this world. I pray, Lord, above all else, Lord, that Your name, Your precious name, would be glorified in this place today. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Uh, the youth class can be dismissed at this time. Amen. Get out of here. There we go. <laughs> Just need a little motivation, that's all. Review of last week. Most of them are my children, so it's okay. Last week we talked about uh, Jesus and Nicodemus. How that Nicodemus went to see Jesus, but in the middle of the night and all alone. We saw Nicodemus was struggling to understand the spiritual concepts that Jesus was trying to relate to him from his carnal physical perspective. Now, to be fair to the man, that's really all he had at this point. Uh, there was no real spiritual understanding uh, among the Pharisees. I think there should have been. I think that was the idea that God had all along. Uh, Jesus even rebukes them at some point, saying that 
you should have done these things and not to have left the others undone. Judgment, mercy, faith. The weightier matters of the law that they completely left out. Uh, and they started focusing on the, the minutia, the, the details, the, the legalistic aspects of it. But in any case, he had no spiritual understanding of what Jesus was trying to relate to him. He referenced everything back to him from the physical. Can I enter into my mother's womb a second time? Obviously, that's not what Jesus was saying. And again, we know the end of the story. We have a a better understanding, a better perspective of, of what Jesus was saying. But still, it seems... It seems like a little bit of a weird question for an educated man to be asking. In any case, that's where Nicodemus was. And Jesus, of course, was was trying to get not only Nicodemus, but the nation of Israel, God's people, to understand that there was a new dispensation coming. He was coming in to, to not, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to complete it. And this new covenant was going to be so much greater. It was going to be so much more perfect than the old. The entire Old Testament was pointing to Christ using carnal or physical examples to demonstrate spiritual realities. And the entire New Testament is pointing back to Christ, showing how He, again, doesn't abolish the law, but He fulfilled it. We saw last week that Jesus is the only way. He's the only answer. There's only one door to salvation, and He's it. Jesus is it. Now, that may offend some people. That may seem uh, a bit closed-minded. I'm sorry about that, but again, not sorry, because it's not me saying it. It's the Creator of of everything that is saying this. When someone who has all power, has all authority, has all knowledge says that this is the only way, friend, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. Who else would have the authority to make such a declaration? You? Me? No. He has the authority to do that. He's the only way. There's only one Gospel and this is it. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. There's only one door to salvation. Galatians 1.9 says, As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. He goes on to say, If an angel from heaven declares to you some new revelation, kick it to the curb. It's not true. This is it. This is... It. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And when we submit ourselves to this one plan, this one gospel, God's plan for salvation, we are indeed born again. Amen. Our daily devotions, even though the Pharisees recognized Jesus' many miracles... Those miracles did nothing to win the Pharisees over. They even tried to explain Jesus' unique power over devils by saying He was in league with Satan.
Again, and we've talked about this at length, the facts were not enough to penetrate through their preconceptions of who Messiah was to be. They understood. They knew who Messiah was going to be. And Jesus wasn't it. Therefore, Jesus was not Messiah. Nothing else really mattered. Human beings are fascinating that way. Day one relates to the new birth experience. And I emphasize the word experience with a natural birth. The mother doesn't have to take her newborn baby by faith. I thought that was an excellent analogy. She knows that that baby is coming, and she knows when it comes. There's no doubt in her mind. Right? Amen. See, this isn't something she's accepting by faith. Likewise, we don't have to simply accept our new birth by faith alone. But because we've been through the birthing process, and we've been through a definite experience, friend, you ought to know that you have been born again. There should be no doubt in your mind. You've experienced a new birth. You know. You know that you've been born again. Day two, we operate by faith in this economy because we don't have all knowledge, power, etc. Interestingly enough, we talked about this on Wednesday. We simply know the one who does have all knowledge and all power. God doesn't need faith. He doesn't need hope. And we won't either once we enter into our reward. But we need faith here and now. We operate by faith. We operate through hope. But not then. As children of God, we must learn to live and walk in the Spirit. We must be comfortable operating in the gifts of the Spirit. This may seem like a fundamental thing to understand, but (laughs) I just really got this a couple weeks ago. That uh, every believer, every born-again child of God has at least a gift of the Spirit that he or she is supposed to be operating in. At least one. I don't know how or why, but I never really put that together with everything else. Everybody, everybody should be operating in the gifts of the Spirit. Living and walking in the Spirit. Hearing the voice of God. Amen. And that process is not one of hard, strenuous labor, but one of simple and total surrender. It's not a struggle. We're not striving. We're not, we're not, we're not fighting through trying to get to the place where I can be used of God. Rather, I should be surrendering to the Spirit of God. Lord willing, we'll talk more about that in the second service. Day three, don't miss Jesus in your midst and don't miss what Jesus is wanting to do in you and through you because you have predefined Him. We've got to understand that His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts than our thoughts. And this was a continuing source of early frustration for me when I first came into this because I need to know I need to understand, and I've got to be able to, I need the, 
They call it today the meta. The meta. I got to understand the big picture. And then all the little pieces I can fit in its proper place in that big picture. That's how I am. That's how my, my mind operates. I want to see the, the, the whole understanding. And I had to come to the realization at some point that some things I'm just not going to understand. Some things just aren't going to fit into my box as big as I make the box. God's not going to fit in there. We talked a little bit uh, a while ago about uh, a group of blind people trying to, to grope around and figure out what an elephant was. One person will feel the, the tusk and say, okay, this is what an elephant is. Another person, no, that's not it at all. He's feeling the leg. This is what an elephant is. Another guy is feeling the tail. No, 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 you guys are both wrong. This is what an elephant is. And they're, both, they're all right and they're all wrong. That's part of what an elephant is, but that's not what the elephant is overall. And so, I've got to understand and we've got to understand that as much as God reveals to us, we have that. That's ours. We're responsible for that. But He hasn't revealed everything to us. And He won't reveal everything about who He is to us, not down here. Because we can't understand infinity. We can't understand the totality of who God is. We just can't. And so as much as I want to know about God, as, as close to God as I may become, I'll never know the entirety of who He is, not down here. And more and more I'm okay with that. More and more I need to realize that I don't really want to worship a God that I can put into a box, that I can control and, and understand completely, define absolutely. My God's not like that. Day four. The complete opposite of day three. Everything we do need to know about God, we can know. Everything we need to understand, we can understand. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. And they do. There are some things He'll not reveal to me. Not down here. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of this law. Again, everything we need to know and understand, He has revealed to us. And those things He has revealed to us, we are responsible for. And we know these things so that we might do all the words of this law, so that we might submit ourselves unto the Lord Jesus Christ, be obedient unto Him, and serve Him. Day five, darkness hides, and that's why those whose deeds are evil love darkness rather than light. We understand that. But darkness is also where you need to trust. There is another kind of darkness where our knowledge ends and our understanding fails. And again, that was a source of frustration for me for a long time. But we need to learn in these situations to trust in Jesus to lead us through those dark places, those desperate times, when we don't understand, when our knowledge fails us. We know the One who has all knowledge. We know the One who can see through the darkness. He'll lead us perfectly, but we've got to trust Him. Sometimes God will put us in a place where we have no choice but to trust Him. Amen.
When God reveals something to us that is quite beyond our experience or understanding, we can trust He'll not lead us astray. Amen. Stay close to Jesus. Stay in His Word. Continue to hear His voice. You'll not go wrong, folks. You'll not go wrong. Our lesson for today, we'll find our Scripture text in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. And I, I apologize, we're not going to have a monitor today. Uh, we are working on that. Amen. Lord willing, we'll have that fixed next service. But hopefully you have your Bibles with you. Amen. <laughs> Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And we'll be talking today, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Within every human being is the basic need of belonging. We desire family and community. The bond from one person to another is essential to our physical, mental, and emotional health. Even more important, it is critical to our spiritual health. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines an orphan as, quote, a child deprived by death of one or usually both parents, unquote. Webster Dictionary defines adopted as, quote, legally made the son or daughter of someone other than a biological parent, unquote. Orphans hope and need to be adopted. When children lose their parents, they lose an essential connection to family that is necessary to be happy, healthy, and productive. Unless they are adopted into a loving and nurturing family, that connection may never be regained. The World Orphans Organization reports that there are approximately 140 million orphans in the world. That means 140 million young children need a family to love them and believe in them. They need parents who will take them in regardless of where they come from. Those parents will help them focus on their future and not on the past. Ultimately and ideally, these children will grow up to be healthy, happy, and productive. They in turn will raise children who will do the same. Just like physical orphans, we, are, we were all spiritual orphans. We needed a spiritual family to take us in and nurture us. We needed a father to love us, protect us, and provide for us. The Bible lets us know that God has adopted us into His family. When we're born again, we are part of the largest adopted family on the face of the earth. Amen. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, We'll read through some of that in just a moment. We read the account of an interaction between King David and a man by the name of Mephibosheth. It's my favorite name in the whole Bible. <laughs> because it's so fun to say. I think it's actually Mephibosheth. But I've always said Sheph. I don't know why. So if I say it like that, we'll just go, we've heard it both ways. <laughs> Amen. But that account is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, 1 through 13. And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show, kind, show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? 
Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not. For I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant, that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits, that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread alway at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet. What a wonderful analogy of what happened to us. Mephibosheth had a royal lineage, didn't he? He was the king's grandson. If all would have went well, with Saul, if he would have been obedient to the commandments of the Lord, Jonathan would have inherited the throne. And if that would have went well, perhaps Mephibosheth would have ascended to the throne as well. But in any case, he was of royal lineage. Until one day, he lost his father and his grandfather. Until then, he grew up as royalty with all the attendant privileges that go with it. When he lost his father and grandfather, he had no immediate family to take care of him. He was now an orphan and completely cut off from his lineage, from the luxuries and privileges of his previous life. He had no more access to that. The Bible says that Mephibosheth was lame on his feet. This happened when he was only five years old. When he got the news, they got the news that King Saul and Jonathan had died. <clears throat> they began to flee. And his nurse picked him up and dropped him. The resulting accident caused him to become lame. After that, the nurse carried him to Lodabar where he lived out of sight. And out of mind. Once King David ascended the throne, God understand how it worked back in the day. Typically, when a king ascended the throne, one of the first things they would do back in those days was they would consolidate power. That sounds pretty sterile, doesn't it? Consolidate power. Kill off all the heirs. Kill off any uh, contenders to the throne. Make sure that there was no doubt who was king. As Mephibosheth was of the lineage of Saul, 
if I would have received a summons from King David, that would be the first thing I would think of. He wants to eliminate me. It's a logical conclusion. Well, one day a messenger did stand before Mephibosheth with orders to come and present himself before King David. You know, (laughs) when the boss calls you into his office or her office, what's the first thing that comes into our minds? This isn't a good thing, is it? The only reason the boss calls me into the office is to chastise me or to correct me or to let me know what I'm doing wrong. They never call me into the office to tell me I'm doing a good job. Maybe they should, huh? In any case, typically, the first thought in someone's mind is I'm in trouble. I did something wrong. Mephibosheth, I'm sure, was thinking the same thing. And I can also imagine him thinking, how could I be a threat to King David? I'm living here in Lodabar, minding my own business. I'm lame on both feet. I am no threat to him. In any case, he comes. He appears before King David. And he presents himself small. As humbly as he could. Maybe I can appease the wrath of this King David. Maybe I can show that I'm no threat. But rather than anger or animosity, David called out to him tenderly, compassionately, kindly. And that must have confused Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel 9.7 says, David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. Thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. I have to imagine that he was completely stunned, dumbfounded, because of his response. Verse 8 says, He bowed himself and said, What is thy servant? that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am. Why would King David show show such kindness and mercy to me? One so insignificant. One so undeserving. You ever thought that? You ever been in that spot? Why would Jesus be so merciful and so kind to me? This confuses a lot of people. I've told you this before. One of my friends in the army I brought to church during the worship service, he started running all right, straight for the door, and he kept going. Ran right to his car and drove home. Never came back. It freaked him out. What scared him so desperately? He didn't know what to do with the presence of God. He didn't know what to do with what he felt inside. It confused him. It confuses people. 
Mephibosheth had nothing to offer the king. Nothing. And the king had nothing to gain by helping Mephibosheth. So what logical reason is there for me being here? Why are you why are you doing this? Why are you being so kind? Why are you why are you telling me these things? It's too good to be true. It probably is, right? This is definitely too good to be true. Mephibosheth must have heard the stories on how Saul treated David. He must have had some understanding of, of that relationship. Why would you do this? Verses 9 and 10 says, Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy son and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread alway at my table. In this one decree, David adopted Mephibosheth into his family. He was treated now as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth, who had nothing to offer David. Nothing at all. His royalty was restored and all the privileges that came with it. When we came to the Lord, folks, we were created to be someone that we weren't. We were created to be something else entirely. But our position when we came to the Lord was that of Mephibosheth. Broken, defeated, nothing to offer God. Nothing at all. The only logical conclusion that we should have come to is that we're here for judgment's sake. That's the only thing I'm, I've earned. That's the only thing I deserve. But that's not what Jesus gave us. He gave us love. He gave us mercy and compassion. Not only that, but He gave us His name. gave us His name, folks. He adopted us into His family. Our royalty was restored. And all the rights and privileges that come with it. Praise God. Therefore, we also ought to show the same compassion to those who are yet spiritual orphans. Each of us needs a desire to give people a seat at our table. Amen. We had nothing to offer Jesus when we came to Him. He gave us everything. When we encounter people at work, on the street, at the grocery mart, wherever it might be, they smell different, they look different, they speak different. Jesus loves them. Jesus died for them. And there's a place at His table for them as well. Praise God. Every person is born spiritually lame. 
Adam was a sinner. The Bible teaches us that like begets like. The only thing a sinner can produce is another sinner. That's right. That's all they can produce. He can only produce after his kind. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Romans 5 and 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We, like Mephibosheth, were born lame. And because of fear of condemnation, or because we know that we have nothing to offer this holy and righteous God, we would never have approached the King ourselves. Jesus had to go looking for me. Jesus had to summon me to Him. But He did exactly that. He sought us out. Even in the case of Adam, the first, the first one who sinned. The Bible says He went looking for Adam. Adam, where art thou? He was seeking after Him. Calling out to Him. He's been doing that ever since. He sought me out. He sought us out. He adopted us into His family. Just like David had other plans for Mephibosheth, so also God had other plans for us. David sent a messenger to the house of Mephibosheth. But God came Himself. He wrapped Himself in flesh and came in the form of a man. And as a man, He humbled Himself and took upon Him the form of a servant. He came Himself, a messenger to lost humanity. God planned to restore us to our rightful place, a place of royalty, a place of honor. And that's where some people start to get confused, maybe scared. I don't understand. What do you mean, my rightful place? I know who I am. I know what I've done. What are you talking about rightful place? A place of royalty. The king's son. I could accept it intellectually. It's right there in the book. i got to believe the book. But it never really got here. I could never really live according to that. I could never walk in that knowledge. And I have to believe that there are other people out there in the same boat. Confused. I hear what you're saying. I can't get the two to mesh. I can't reconcile these two ideas, these two concepts. Friend, this is who you were created to be. All that you're thinking, 
All that you understand is true. Yes, you did those things. That's who you were. And I need to emphasize that. That's who you were. But you're not that now. When I came to the Lord, I was a sinner. That's who I was by nature, a child of wrath. But that's not who I am now. God miraculously and supernaturally transformed me. We are new creatures. New creatures. We're not sinners anymore. We're children of the Most High God. And as children, as sons, as daughters, we are royalty. All the resources of heaven are at your disposal. I know I'm getting ahead of myself. But the parable of the prodigal son. What did he tell the older brother when he was angry? All that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. You have need of nothing anymore. Nothing. You have everything that you need. The Lord Himself will provide all that you have need of. Because that's who you are now. And do whatever you need to do to to choke that down. Do whatever you need to do to get it down in here. Because it's the truth. And all the arguing and all of the debates and all of the reasons that you have are not going to change the fact that God has transformed you into someone else. That you are a child of God now. And you need to start living that. You need to start walking according to that. Amen. All right. When we obey the Gospel, incorporating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ into our lives, we are adopted into God's family. Galatians 4, 3-5 says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive what? The adoption of sons and daughters. Romans 8, 15 and 16 says, Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every fact be established. Amen. Your spirit witnesses, the Spirit of God witnesses the same thing, that we are the children of God. Everything changes when we are born again. Everything is different. Everything becomes new when we are born again. When we come to God, we're spiritual orphans, broken and crippled by sin. When we're born again, we're adopted into His family, healed, made whole, complete, restored. Everything is made new. Praise God. We have rights and privileges as children of God. Amen. Aren't you thankful for that? 
Titus 3, 4-7 through says, But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He said on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Galatians 4 and 7 says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with Him, that we might also be glorified together. Amen. Can you begin to see yourself as Jesus sees you? And here's a question that I like to ask myself when I begin to struggle again with this. Does it please Jesus when you see yourself any other way? Do you think it makes God happy? Do you think it gives Him pleasure? For you to wallow in the man or the woman that you used to be. It does not. So why do you keep doing it? What purpose are you trying to serve? What are you trying to accomplish by doing that? There's nothing you can do or not do that will make Him love you any less or any more. You can't earn your way to salvation. You can't do enough to pay for your sins. So I hope you're not trying to do that. What do you think would happen if we refused to live as His son or as His daughter? If we just never get it, we continue to see ourselves as the man or the woman that we used to be. What happens then? What's the end result of that? What's the, what's the, what's the end game there? What's the plan? What's the goal in us doing that? Jesus sees you as His son, as His daughter. He sees you as a conqueror, as a warrior. He sees you as a victor. So my advice, my counsel, is to just accept that. Just take Jesus at His word and start walking according to that. See what happens. You don't have to buy into it 100%. I wish you would. But just start walking according, as if that were true. Just start acting as if that were true. See what happens. See what begins to happen in you, through you. We need to live our life according to the office, the station that God has placed us in. 
Who gets to decide what place you have in the kingdom of God? Me? Nope. You? Nope. God gets to decide, right? So when He does decide, why do we balk at it? When He tells you, you're my child, you're my son, I've given you my name. I've given you the earnest of your inheritance, the gift of the Holy Ghost. I've given you power and authority. I've given you love, compassion, forgiveness, mercy, grace. I've given you everything you need. Yeah, but this is who I used to be. Who you used to be is powerless against God. Who I used to be is complete. He is completely weak. He is completely powerless to do anything against God, what God wants to do in me. There's nothing my old man can do against what I am today. Amen. So let him die. Let him die, folks. There's no good thing there anyway. Why do you keep dredging him up? Let the poor schlep die and walk on in newness of life according to the, the person, the son, the daughter that God has made you into today. Walk according to that from this point forward. Don't pay any mind to the devil when he brings that old man or that old woman up. Shut it down. That guy's long gone, he's been dead. Palace life was probably awkward for Mephibosheth at first. <clears throat> He'd been living the pauper's life for a little while now. But as one of the king's sons, he had new clothes, new furniture, just prepared him all the meals, ate the very best food, lived in the palace, ate at the king's table daily. What a change. I can imagine at first that must have been a little bit awkward. I'm not his biological son. I don't belong here. This isn't my place. But eventually, I have to imagine, at some point he would need to accept the fact that this is who I am now. This is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. Eating at the king's table. Enjoying all of the privileges of being the king's son. When will we? When will we begin to just accept the fact that this is who we are now? This is what we're going to be doing for the rest of our lives living as a child of the Most High God. Our new birth experience is well, that's one of the most important things you could ever do in your life. It's the most important experience you could ever experience in your life. But it's a one-time thing. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning of, of an entire lifetime spent living for God, walking with God.
serving God, enjoying the rights and privileges of being his son or his daughter. We should live our lives with confidence that we are loved and accepted by God, that we are blood-bought children of the living God, and as such, all the promises in this book are ours. We all understand that there are precepts we need to adhere to, etc., etc. I hope we understand that. But the point of our message today is this. You are loved by God, no matter what. You are accepted by Him. Amen. Because of the finished work of Jesus at Calvary. He accepts that sacrifice in your stead. In your place. You don't have to pay for the sins that you've committed. They've been paid already. When you come to Him in repentance, you don't have to beat yourself up for a week and a half before you think that, well, now maybe God will finally forgive me. I did that for a while too. It can't be that easy, right? It can't be that that quick. It's got to be a a period here. No. No, Calvary is powerful enough to take care of it right now. Truly repent. Bring forth the fruits meet for repentance. He's ready to forgive right now. I don't have to beat myself up for a week. Why was I beating myself up for a week? Because I had felt like I had to pay for it. Right? Why do people beat themselves up over stuff? Because they're trying to pay for it themselves. And I understand where you're coming from, but you're dead wrong. I was dead wrong. You can't. You never will. Let Jesus do it. Let Jesus take care of that for you. He wants to. He already did. He already did. Let Him take care of that for you. Start realizing who you are in God. Start walking according to that. Friend, please, do yourselves a favor. Understand who you are in God. Do you see yourself the way Jesus sees you? Do you see others the way Jesus sees them? Like Mephibosheth, we had nothing to offer the king, and the king had nothing to gain by adopting us. Think about that for a moment. What did Jesus have to gain? He is self-existent. If He never created mankind, He'd be good. He'd be perfect. He'd be complete in and of Himself. That's what that means, self-existent. He doesn't need anything or anyone. He's complete in Himself. He had nothing to gain by adopting us. He did it because He loved us. He loves us. And He loves us perfectly. He knows each of us because He created us. And He knows what we are supposed to be. He created us with a plan and a purpose in mind. 
Some people, they frustrate that plan. They choose to walk contrary to that plan. But if he will choose to walk in harmony with his plan, the sky's the limit, literally. The sky is the limit. God can literally do anything he wants to do through you. When Jesus adopted us into his family, that was only the beginning of a greater life than we could possibly imagine. Not only do we become sons and daughters, but we are to rule and reign with Him. And all of the resources of heaven are at our disposal. There it is. Luke 15.31 He said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. Meditate on that for just a little bit. We have needs, legitimate needs. And from time to time, those needs become great. And we start to become concerned. Why do we become concerned? Why do we begin to worry or stress or fear or doubt? Jesus has promised us that He would take care of every one of our needs. Do we trust Him when He, when he tells us that? I have learned to trust Him. I've had opportunity to try that promise a time or two. And He comes through every time. Every time. He's faithful. This life, serving the Lord, living for Him, is the greatest life imaginable. It can't compare to anything. I've heard Lee Stone King say this a bunch of times. I, it's just an awesome statement. Why stoop to being a king when you can be a son of God? Amen. There's no greater life than being His child. There's no higher place in all of creation than being His child. What an honor He has bestowed upon us. What a blessing, what a privilege He has given to us. To bear His name. To declare His name to this world. Amen. God bless you all today. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that you suffered on a cross and you died in my place. You paid the just punishment of my sins yourself. But after that, you completely restored the relationship that you had with me, with us. You gave us Your name in water baptism. The earnest of our inheritance. Your Spirit. You bestow blessing upon blessing. Taking care of every need. Giving us free access to the, the throne of grace. 
the honor and the, the, the privileges that you have bestowed upon us are unfathomable. But these are, this is the truth. This is who we are now. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, that your people would begin to live and to walk according to that understanding. That we would accept the fact that you love us and that you have accepted us and that you have given us your name and we are no longer sinners but children of God. That we are no longer who we used to be. We are who you created us to be now. Sons and daughters of the Most High God. Help us to live according to that. Bless the remainder of these services. Let your great name be glorified in these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your kind attention. We'll be back at a quarter till.